0: It's one oil for man. One giant leap for mankind. Yeah, is we now a genuine adults? <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, nah, no, mate. seventeen years ago Is <laughs> <laughs> then we go back decades, bro. Because yeah. ah. like, I obviously like we knew each other going like through school and everything yeah. like that and I, I just like I never saw you as the type of guy that would have anxiety, but exactly
1: who you are now that's the uh, that's the problem Um, because I didn't see myself as the type of person to not be happy or to suffer Um, and you know I guess that's a good place to start really during school I was the guy that was always like making jokes making people laugh I wanted to keep this uh, this almost like an act up that I was the happy one. Mm. And so you had, you had a facade. Yeah, and and you don't realize that when you're young. You think like, well, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm a happy person and when I'm down, that's not me. Yeah. Um and then, you know, I think when I was when I was young, I mean, this podcast all about being open and I'm going to be as brutally honest as as I possibly can. And and, and we've we've discussed We've discussed many times, like when we were younger, sort of about girls and and all of those things that teenage boys, especially uh, in the UK and America and those places where where you you know you watch films and it's just like so naturally the man is so confident and this person who should be approaching women and uh, you know men go to women, that's the way it is. So I grew up thinking that, you know, I was absolutely awful with girls, totally unattractive. And that was sort of my mini suffering uh, as a teenager. And And you you thought you weren't good enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And uh, incredibly scared of potentially being rejected by anyone. Um, Mm. Did you have like
0: encounters that brought that on? Or, or was that just made up in your head? Well, not made up, but was that just a, a kind of a figure of your imagination about what might happen? Or were there actual kind of examples and
1: experiences that you lived through which brought that on? I think that just generally, you know, everyone's sort of born with a few core traits that they'll take with them for the rest of their life. And and uh, I think I was just one of those people naturally born sensitive yeah and because of that sensitivity I would try and read into things often far too much and and uh, I guess there w- would have been infinite po- uh, possibilities of different things that all meant that I then had this idea that I wasn't good enough yeah um, but as Dangerous as that is, in and of itself. <laughs> it's even more dangerous when you get what you want.
0: When you're saying when someone rejects you. No, and...
1: no, when you actually get that girl or you have a girlfriend that you've yeah. wanted for your whole teenagehood. Yeah. Why is it more dangerous when, when that happens? Because surely
0: that's, surely that's deflecting away from all your insecurities and all of a sudden you're Mr. Secure.
1: Exactly, but you're not. Because it's not... It's never... Phenomenality, it's always the mindset behind why you think that, you know. For example, like just to put it into context, because it will make total sense in context, yeah. You know, I spend my whole teenagehood thinking that I'm good in all ways and I'm confident in all ways, except for having a girlfriend or that that interaction with women and girls. Mm. And, and, then and then I finally yeah. get a girlfriend at 18 and I think that's it. My, like, my, your purpose. There's nothing your I'm, purpose is fulfilled. Yeah. Right? Like I don't need to go on trying anymore or I don't not trying, but I don't need to carry on. Uh, You've, like accomplishment. Yeah. Your accomplishment. That's yeah. it. Like I'm finished. I'm complete now. Yeah. Um, life is total happiness from this point onwards. And that's, that is the case for about two or three months because of the novelty, so you kind of you
0: get into a relationship and then your your thoughts that you had about like your insecurities did they did they just go away or did you did you think that okay they're not true like me you are a good looking guy
1: yeah, so I mean the really interesting thing was that as I approached that period where i where i Ended up having a girlfriend. It was like I'd finally got to the point where I was like, I actually don't care anymore. And just as I stopped caring whether I did or don't didn't care about your having feelings. a girlfriend, oh, having
0: a girlfriend, it came. You know. So and wait. So just to like understand your kind of thought process here, you were completely insecure about your looks and about your confidence and about your dealings with girls and then you get a girlfriend and once you get a girlfriend the th- the insecurities
1: go away but then you stop caring about having a girlfriend no it was it was just before i i had i had a girlfriend was when i sort of relaxed a bit more about yeah. the whole thing yeah yeah and then obviously just like with all things when you actually relax about something the thing that you were so set on it ends up happening more naturally yeah and sort of after like 2 or 3 months the novelty of having a girlfriend starts to wear off and I started to get the most intense feelings of anxiety that I'd ever felt like I I could just always remember this time that I dropped her off and I went home and it was just so intense like I'd never felt that sort of downness before in my life until that point mm. and I I didn't know what it was. I had no idea because I'd never felt that before. And like your uh, partner in
0: your relationship never gave you any reason to
1: no, no. like think that? No, that's it. And uh, it was just so intense. And as with really everyone who begins to suffer fully in that way, the first time they do, they always look to what's going on around them to see what they can blame
0: oh yeah so and that that's what I think is like the really important thing to to be aware of here is that it wasn't you and nothing was happening in your external surroundings everything was happening inside your head these were the motions inside of your head yeah. and it wasn't a reaction to anything that was actually going on externally
1: no but at the time um, you know I had no idea it yeah at, at the time everything was outward there's there was no such thing as uh as inward it wasn't even that i chose not to be inward or introspective it mm-hmm. was just that there wasn't it there wasn't inward thinking or introspection there was only outwardness
0: yeah what do you mean by outwardness
1: when you say uh, this? Uh, like you're blaming things
0: around you or
1: yeah so it's it's sort of like oh i feel intensely uh, jealous about something? Yeah, it must be because they're going out,
0: uh, not
1: because of the way that I am approaching it on my perspective. Yeah, but because of what they're doing. So you were like with
0: the anxiety and the thoughts and jealousy that were going through your head. You were looking. You were doing all you could to like pinpoint everything around you to see and, what I could change.
1: Yeah, but completely avoiding like looking at yourself. Yeah, and it is. It's not even an avoidance. It's just an, a not actually knowing that i can do that it's not knowing <laughs> that i could that it could have anything to do with my perspective yeah Surprised so prior to this you it, never had any
0: like moments of introspection or self-awareness
1: not really everything was incredibly outward like i was i was very set on being successful and the interesting thing about the sort of success that i wanted mm. Was it wasn't actually money driven, and it's never really been money driven. It was always driven by power, my want for power, power over other people, other people. Yeah. So, but that that you know that doesn't mean to say that like I was uh, some sort of uh, uh, heretic, or I don't even know if that's the right word, but it, like I didn't want to like uh, lord it over people. But more just, like, I would get a thrill from teaching someone something, even if they already knew it. Yeah. But just that thrill of, like, being the, the one that knows more, being the one that can show someone, being the one in control. Even if the other
0: person is knows it. And it, yeah. it, it's interesting, yeah. obviously, because your, like, pr- industry when you left school was you, you were a chef. Yeah. And just it's, it's well known that kind of the head chefs in the kitchen are, they have all the power mm. They they almost have like a bully like status where they can te- try and teach you something that you may already know yeah. but because they have that power over you they can just like rub it in your face anyway and maybe that was like the ambition that you had you kind of saw all these people in the industry that you were mm-hmm. passionate about and then that all of a sudden kind of drove you on that path
1: yeah yeah i would get I'd get visions of myself being in that position, sort of like shouting at people and stuff. Yeah, and um, I guess just to take it back before the before the that time that I was just speaking about, where it was the first time that I'd really felt that kind of abyss-like suffering, like darkness, like nowhere to turn. Just before that. I had been a chef for two and a half to three years, Mm. and I did suffer greatly during that period. In what Um, way? That was also massive anxiety. Um, And to be fair, the anxiety I experienced during that time was, in my mind, a lot more understandable um
0: because you're nervous about the workplace like yeah and like just to give people
1: an idea idea of of how tough it is to work in in restaurants in london especially like higher end restaurants and by the way you don't need to be a good chef to work in a high-end restaurant because the staff turnover is so high because no one wants to because people are only working there for two three months because that's all they can handle why is it so why is it so
0: tough what's so tough about it
1: I could guarantee in like the last place I worked in,
0: yeah. not as a joke,
1: that I would be called a, like a genuine cunt every single day, and I could guarantee that I'll go into work and someone would call me a cunt. Does that do anything to you? It's, it destroys um... you, and you know, like I uh, had bowls thrown at me. I once leant down into like a waist height fridge, and the junior sous chef need the door into me. Uh, I saw people be. I saw people heating up spoons, like, until they were, like, really hot and burning people on the wrists. What?
0: So th- this was going on in, like, in your workplace? You were... Yeah, 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 you, were yeah, yeah. Being, you were being physically abused in your physically, workplace? Physically,
1: mental, mentally, emotionally, like, That's it was... That's nuts. So w-
0: why um, would anyone... I mean, this is obviously why the turnover's so high, but I can't imagine why anyone would even stay there for two months, let alone two days. Because
1: there's almost no industry more egotistical than being a chef. Because... It's not about so often it's not actually about working for the team. it's about just get gaining enough experience so that eventually one day you can do your own thing. So you'll stay in a place for two, three months, get battered on all levels yeah, and then move on and uh, to a
0: better restaurant.
1: yeah or just one that was doing different food.
0: So does everyone who goes in, everyone who goes into this industry do they have to go
1: through this sort of like? Abusive trauma. No, no, definitely not. Does but everyone like, experience this? or do you there, think There's this a just mindset... Definitely not all chefs will experience that. But and the majority will. And the mindset is, you go to a restaurant, and if it's a really top-end restaurant, you know the sort of treatment you're going to get. And the reason why no one questions it, and no one reports anyone for the type of abuse that you get, is because genuinely it's just like with any other sort of society where when you grow up in it, when you yeah. grow up in it you don't question it you don't know any different exactly most chefs will start being a chef as their first job so they don't know any different yeah they don't know what it's like to be treated fairly hmm. so as much as they don't like the way they're being treated they don't fit, like we don't or I didn't fully understand just how awful that treatment is. Um, and you just don't question it. You do just you think say yes.
0: Had, do you think that's had long-term effects on you? Um, or was it, or was as soon as you were out the kitchen, you were back to back to normal?
1: I was certainly happier as soon as I left the kitchen. But it definitely did have long-term or has had long-term effect having said that though I was only a chef for about two and a half years so as traumatising as some of those events were I don't think they are particularly lasting but like for example it's, it's taken me uh, four or five years to sort of get over the stigma Not stigma, but get over that anxiety of when I cook something having to make it totally perfect or else I will get extremely annoyed. And that must have come from a conditioning where if you don't get it perfect in in a professional kitchen, someone else is going to get extremely annoyed. And
0: their likelihood is they're going to hurt you as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was never fully, fully hurt. Well, so I was... I was dug a few times with uh, some really long sort of tweezer-like things Mm -hmm. in the sides. Um, Mm. Barged out the way a lot. Like, in my first restaurant, I would get... If I was on the pass, plating something up, the head chef, although he was my favourite head chef, he would often come along and genuinely barge me out the way. And this guy was at least 6'3", and probably about 18 stone. And I was 16, and about... 11 just by like. cliche
0: chefs of chunky people
1: <laughs> yeah and he would genuinely like barge me out of the way yeah um really crazy is this enough for you to
0: tell someone not to go into that industry
1: yeah yeah because uh high-end restaurants on that. I, I was just about to say they're all about making money but they don't make money because you know, their ingredients are so expensive so they normally the owner will normally have a couple of like pubs and cafes where they actually make their money but it's all about so is it the status of having a high-end
0: restaurant yeah
1: exactly it's not actually about food so much anymore and so honestly if someone really wants to be a chef i would always advise them to go and work for a small restaurant yeah. Whereas the owner maybe works there. It only really happens in those, like, higher-end restaurants, and it it more so happens in the actual kitchen. Yeah. But it does happen in front of house as well, but, yeah.
0: I mean, that that was obviously a part of your experience of, like, of growth, because you're being spat on every day and told you're nothing, and all of a sudden you're going to have to look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, like, am I really nothing? Because you've been telling yourself for years that you're not good enough, and then you've gone... It's like you've gone out into the work world and your own thoughts had been, like, verified by another person.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I I constantly had to tell myself, like, well, if I just keep working hard, I know I can be the best. Yeah. Potentially the most traumatising part about being a chef was the decision to not be one. Because... It was your passion. I had to give up on the idea that I would be the best chef.
0: Yeah, so this, like you were saying before, how we got into talking about this, uh, your kind of obsession with the desire of power yeah exactly
1: so so you can imagine for someone who who unconsciously um desired power so deeply to give up on the only thing that i thought i was potentially good at and give all that up was like really hard but i didn't At the same time, the reason why I gave up was because of my family, because of my friends, because I wanted to live a life that wasn't so ridiculously difficult and so antisocial because I value the social aspect of life. Mm. And so that was really, like, that decision to leave being a chef was the first step on the ladder to, like, changing the way I thought about life. Yeah. Because because I made a decision based on love rather than based on power. That's quite incredible. I mean, it's your...
0: You would have thought you were in love with being a chef, but you were kind of blinded and drunkly drunk in love. As Beyonce would say, you were drunk in love. Uh, like, uh, being a chef, and it wasn't, it wasn't, like, clear vision
1: for you? It wasn't passion. It yeah. wasn't passion. It was passion for food, without a doubt. That's never left, and it's still today. The, I mean, I, I think about food. I mean, so does everyone, but I probably think about food double as much as the average person. And you're half the size of the average person. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so the the passion has exponentially increased since being a chef as well yeah because i because i'm no longer being there's no longer a parasite attached to me yeah which is the chefing industry telling me that's the only way you can express your passion for food so i've got rid of that parasite that's sort of sucking out of me my passion Mm.
0: because you can like you can now make your family dinner without without like putting pressure
1: on yourself that you have to make it a five-star meal exactly and And also, like, I can actually experiment with food that I want to. Yeah. And that's, like, so, so important when it comes to cooking.
0: Yeah, it's crazy because I I saw, like, your Facebook videos that you were uploading and you just look like you're in your element whilst you're making pasta and bread and things like that. And it's quality because when you compare yourself cooking then to... Yourself like five years ago when you were cooking in a kitchen at a high end restaurant, which I ate at. I remember we're going yeah. there with the boys oh, yeah, and we went yeah. to eat there, and the food was quality. Yeah. And then we got like cigars because we thought we were cool. And yeah. Even though I didn't know how to smoke well, one and <laughs> started inhaling it. Um, yeah. Like, I, I remember it, and like, y- you must be comparing yourself like who you are now and mm. cooking in comparison to like who you were back then and having like your kind of head chef over yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. and you know, I'm a better cook now, like beyond beyond what I could have even imagined back then. Mm. But could I go back into a kit? Like, am I a better cook in the respect? Like, could I go back into a kitchen and be a better chef? Definitely not, because I'm probably ten times slower, way less efficient. Um, And i just don't care well you know your value as well you know your worth
0: and you know you're not worth being prodded and dug and
1: yeah and 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 i love food too much this is incredible but i love food too much to step into a professional kitchen and it shouldn't be that way you should love food so much that you want to step into a professional kitchen yeah but it's such a disgusting industry that it makes you want to step out of it because you love it yeah you know, you, like, why would someone stick with being abused just because they love food, when you can love food not being abused?
0: Yeah. Is there anyone out there who's trying to reform the chef industry? Yeah, there's,
1: there there are, like, plenty of people. Um, so this is a known
0: thing about how chefs, how, like, yeah, young chefs yeah, yeah. are treated?
1: Yeah, and, like, eventually it w- it will change, because it has to, because there's such a huge shortage of, sh- of new chefs, uh, because less and less and less people want to do those things that you have, for some reason, you have to do in order to be even remotely successful. Yeah. But one of the turning points was I was on the phone to my mum and we were speaking and she just said that, you know, that she was worried about me because all my friends had girlfriends at the time and they were going out and they socialised and they... You know, they're doing normal teenage things. And I just thought to myself, Well, I don't have time to have a girlfriend. And I don't if I work like this for the rest of my life, I don't have time to have a family or socialise or do anything that I actually want to do. Things that when I think about make me feel warm. You know, when I think about spending the next fifteen years potentially doing this every day, that doesn't make me feel warm inside. That makes me feel very, very cold. Yeah, and when she said that, I just burst up crying because I knew that what I was doing wasn't actually what I wanted. But anyway...
0: And this that was point, your first moment of...
1: That was one of them. Yeah, And at that point, I wanted to give up then. And I was like, no, no, I have to... I'll, I'll try another restaurant. Maybe it's just this one. So I tried another restaurant. And I was there for six months, and then the breaking point was I was on a late shift which started at three pm. We were busy the night before, and I was on, on a two late shifts in a row basically. So I'd done the evening service. It was really busy, and like the courtesies for the person on the early shift or the double shift next the next day, you try and do as many jobs as you can to make their life easier in the morning. Yeah, it's for your for your teammate. And it was really busy, and I basically run down on everything, so I had very little prepared for the next day and I went home anxious about the fact that I hadn't done anything. How many hours team. had you just worked as well? to be fair, that day was only about probably ten or something. But it was the late shift but I was still working about 75 hours at this restaurant, so it was yeah. still 75 hours a week. So you go home and,
0: like, your anxiety is Because there's nothing rampant. done for the next
1: day. Yeah. Go to sleep, wake up the next day, spend the whole morning and afternoon leading up until work incredibly anxious about what I'm going to walk into at work. What's your, what's your
0: experience of anxiety? How are you feeling, like, inside? What's going like, on? Like, just
1: intense worry. Like, it's just being so scared. Like genuinely fearful for what people are gonna uh, the the reaction you're gonna get. Yeah. Like genuinely scared because because it it is physically, mentally, and emotionally very scary. And I went in having spent basically uh, fifteen hours worrying and. My tea. I, I see my teammate, and uh, she's got a smile on her face. And I did actually really like her. She was lovely. And uh, I said to her, like, "How was it? How was lunch?" And she was like, "Yeah, good." <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you spent like fifteen hours worrying, like enough to give Oof. you a little acne breakout on your. Oh, hundred <laughs> yeah, percent.
1: It was it was, it was de- genuinely terrible.
0: Her reaction was that uh, yeah, yeah, it was good.
1: She was like, yeah, yeah, it was fine. Uh, and I was like, there, there was a lot to do, wasn't there, in the morning? She was like, yeah, but like, I had some help, so we got it done. And I was like, you're such a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, all to that yourself, you were saying this to yourself. And even though at that point I was relieved, I went into the evening service, and she helped me prepare for the evening service. And I went down like a sack of shit, like I tended to always do there, because the service was so difficult, and there was so much to do, and the dishes were, the dishes weren't actually that complex, but... The what type of restaurant was this one? Are this was a fish at? restaurant, it was called, it was called The Angler. Yeah. Um, Would you I, eat there? It was a, it was a Michelin-style restaurant. Would yeah. I eat there? Yeah. I personally wouldn't. Oh, you're a vegan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh get a vegan dish (laughs) but i imagine they probably do have something like that now but um yeah and i went into the evening service and i was just yeah as i said going down like a sack of shit and i just thought to myself nah i'm done like the first time where i thought i wanted to give up that was i was upset and i was worried and i didn't know what i was going to do and but this was... This is when I knew it was time to leave because I didn't care yeah. anymore. I was like, I'm done.
0: I'm so done. prior to that, were you, like, battling with the thought of giving up?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I was, like, really not enjoying myself at all. Yeah. And I knew that this wasn't what life was about. And then, yeah, yeah that moment came. It was the new year of 2016. We yes, were young, man. We were, like, 18, 19 years old at this point. Yeah, I think... Yeah, uh, yeah, I was eighteen. You were eighteen. So like, you know, for an eighteen-year-old to be in that situation, like you—you you never think you're young when you're when you're the age you are. Yeah. And uh, but I was, mm. and yeah, it was a big, big decision. And uh, well, there's a huge the stigmatism. There's a
0: stigmatism behind quitting as well because you think, okay, like yeah. all of my—you're eighteen. So like, I I was eighteen and working as well. I didn't go to university, obviously, and like I'm thinking. Okay, all my mates are in uni right now,
1: and all of a sudden I'm like, "You're going to be unemployed," mm. and
0: look at you in comparison to your friends.
1: Yeah, and I guess that that was a worry that I was like giving up on the only thing I'd ever put any effort into. Mm. But I just knew that regardless of how much effort I put in, I couldn't carry on doing yeah. this. And uh, and at the time it was like, maybe I'll go back to it, maybe I won't. Yeah and uh, i gave up on it and uh, got a different job
0: so then this like anxiety that you obviously it was like it sprouted in this restaurant environment and then like you had your relationship like a year later or so and then that's
1: what we were saying just yeah. yeah
0: so that's when it started to like really take a turn for the work so it didn't just go away just because you made like one you made a huge decision to like quit your passion at the time yeah and but that didn't get rid of your anxiety no so so i
1: th- it's like at every point when what you want to happen does actually happen that is as i said before like almost more dangerous than constantly striving for what you want because mm-hmm. when you get it you realize that wasn't necessarily what the cure was and uh but no no doubt like If you're in a situation that is making you feel awful and you know that by leaving it, it will alleviate, then I do think you should leave. You know, like if you're, if you're being abused in any situation, you should leave. Yeah. It's not like, oh, maybe I can sort this out in my head. Like if you're being abused, you should leave. Okay. So
0: to then like go forward to when you're in a relationship and you were, you'd like, you were speaking about that moment where you went home and, you dropped your girlfriend off and you went home and you were feeling incredibly worried and jealous for, like, nothing on the outside, but all completely in your head, your immediate thought wouldn't be to, like, to leave, because you knew it wasn't your girlfriend's fault.
1: Yeah, yeah, there was always this feeling that, oh, I know this isn't your fault, because, because, again, like, conceptually, I knew that I did have some concept that, you know, like, I shouldn't take out how I was feeling on her. Yeah. But what you know to be true conceptually, and how you feel, and what you then do based on how you're feeling, are two very different things. And and just slowly, slowly, from that point where I first felt that kind of dropping feeling, that that feeling of abyss, where like everywhere you turn is darkness, and you're on your own in it. Yeah, and no one can help you. Mm. And anything anyone says just pushes you further into the yeah. abyss.
0: So how did it progress from there? Did it get worse? Or
1: Yeah, yeah, it gradually, gradually got worse. Um, how does it get
0: worse from this?
1: I think because it's one thing to feel that, but then once you start acting based on that feeling, it gets worse because I, f- I feel that. And then as a result, for example, if she doesn't uh, reply to my message or she doesn't message me for a few hours, even if she might be at work, for example, mm. I would get angry, and then I would say, "You know, are you not thinking about me? Why didn't you message me?" Like, I'm always thinking about you, but it doesn't seem that like you're always thinking yeah. about me. Or like, she's out and uh, she got to a place and she didn't tell me. And at the time, I genuinely thought that the reason why I'd get annoyed that she didn't tell me she got to the place she was going to, was because I was worried about her. But it's not because I was worried about her. Because essentially there's a 99.999% chance she would have got there safely. Yeah. But I was actually... Well, I, the reason why I was actually angry was because she wasn't doing what I wanted her to do. Yeah. And that just perpetually gets worse and worse and worse the more you try and make them do what you want. And then they start... If they then necessarily... Because again, she was the same age as me, so young they don't have the awareness and the uh, emotional astuteness to to see what I was actually doing rather than what I was saying I what was you doing. truly meant yeah yeah then she would start to blame herself for being a bad person which when there was nothing she, to do about she did what was and her. that's an awful thing to happen
0: yeah so um, it, it, yeah. Well, it's crazy because I mean takes it, t- it takes so much to like speak about that just because there again there's a stigmatism that men won't have these type of emotions and feelings where like you will be jealous or I mean men obviously get jealous but but to like to be open about these feelings and understand like you have the controlling controlling side as well and to just be completely open in that sense is like is, is a really admirable thing yeah
1: the most important point in that whole journey was in, in, that whole, in that whole experience, was uh, June the 23rd, 2016. Yeah. I remember the date, because it's the day that Brexit was announced. <laughs> God, that was like, God, I don't even want to talk about Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because it was announced that, you know, Britain had voted to go out of Europe, she said, you know, that her mum said, um well you better go like if you wanted to maybe go to university in somewhere in Europe then this is your chance and again because of the reliance because I because that meant potentially her going to Europe would mean I would have I would seemingly even though there's no you never have control you never actually have control of anything But sometimes you feel you do, and sometimes you feel you don't. Mm. And in that situation, I was so out of control, and I spiralled into this... like, perpetual motion, where the motion of my suffering was energising my deepening of my suffering. And...
0: Suffering begetting suffering. suffering yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and that's intense you're in like an inception of suffering yeah a suffering spiral which is yeah. basically like you know and, and I started like having massive panic attacks I couldn't control my well I can you can never control your thoughts but they were so obviously out of control erratic and fast erratic and I was panicking and when were these panic attacks happening I was at work so i had to like leave work and luckily i had i at the time had the best manager yeah and she like she you know she said to me like take as much time as you need and i did and that was the first and only time that i'd ever had gen like actual the thoughts of wanting to die and wanting to never be seen by anyone ever again was the first and only time that ever happened to me and as I said it, and I said it to her I almost instantly regretted it not because I didn't feel it but I saw what that did to her and even though it wasn't a conscious thing then Because of how how momentous and huge that was, there was this unspoken rule in my head that that would never happen again. I would never... I might get that low again, but from now on in, there's going to be an effort to do something about that.
0: So this was the turning point for you? Yeah. And it was... Like you're saying, you had this thought, this thought that came to your head, which was you wanted to die. And is that was that is that the lowest moment you've ever had in your life?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And
0: Thank that God. was that was what you were able to use to springboard you to change.
1: Yeah, and as as I say, like I don't want. It wasn't like I had the thought, and I was like, "That's it. I'm gonna be like a superhero from na- from now on." In like the day didn't get much better and you know i think i went to vietnam a few weeks after that and whilst i was in vietnam i felt totally fine because there was so much distraction came back and it almost instantly came back to me mm. and depression and anxiety and i had some therapy it wasn't great um, why
0: i'm quite pro therapy so i'm curious like what your experience was then in therapy if Because you're at the lowest of the lows.
1: Yeah. I mean, it helped to a degree because it was just someone who was totally unbiased and neutral that I could just splurge how I felt onto. But, you know, I went there thinking that they were going to give me a technique that I could use in order to control when my thoughts feel out of control. And... I just don't think it was given over very clearly at all. Bad techers. Yeah, not great techers. Not great. Techers. Uh, but you know, it was helpful to a degree. Uh, it was with it was through the NHS as well. And so you're you have a unless unless you're like genuine you, you've attempted to commit suicide. Which you hadn't. Which I hadn't. Then you have to go on like a three, four month waiting list and then you get six sessions bi-weekly. And then once they're done, you go back on the waiting list for another three or four months. That's
0: fucking terrifying for people who... Imagine like you, you to think to yourself, I want to end my life, but you haven't done it. You can almost see why people do it as a cry for help. Because imagine you're at the lowest you've ever felt like you were. And all you need is for like in that moment, and I've been in that moment before. Like the last thing I'm thinking is, "Oh, I'd like a therapist." Yeah. But <laughs> but if the difference between seeing a therapist is whether you try to kill yourself or not, you know, maybe that cry for help is like is what you need, and is what like that that's why people turn to it. Yeah. And it's awful because you're at the lowest you've ever felt, and all you wanted was. speak to someone to speak to someone
1: yeah definitely It's uh it's definitely a problem um but my one of my best friends at that time on my but so it was my birthday which is in mid-august and we'd spoken about a certain book that had really helped him or that or that he'd been recommended i think and uh, just, for, just for everyone else, it was called The Four Agreements. Bloody great book. Um, Don, Miguel, Don Miguel Ruiz. You know, it is an incredible book, but it's just unbelievable how things come into your life in flows, just when they need to come. And uh, that, he gave me the book, told me to read it, and uh, I didn't until about a month later when my anxiety and depression got really bad.
0: When you... How did it get bad? What what happened? I mean, you were in a pretty just, low state when, like, you wanted to kill yourself, but...
1: Yeah, so that was in June. This is in, sort of, August and September. Mm. I think I was, like, attempting to do meditation, stuff like that, and, uh... Yeah, just... When I didn't feel great, I would see friends. Sort of all those preliminary things that people do when, uh, They're trying to get better.
0: Yeah.
1: And... Uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't even remember the moment that I, well, I kind of remember it where I picked the book up and thought, oh, I'm going to read this. Had you ever read a book before? <laughs> <laughs> Were you a reader? Um, no, I actually wasn't, to be fair. Yeah. I think it was genuinely one of the first books I've read from start to finish, like, totally. From the Magic Key or whatever, that
0: Kipper, what was that book we mm. used to read in reception? Oh. About Kipper the dog or something like that, where they'd have a
1: key. Yeah, and Kip. Kit,
0: yeah. Kit was it Kip. Kit, Pip and
1: I can't remember. Schmick. I don't know, but But I was never great at reading yeah. anyway. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I was never that uh I'm a very slow reader, which is I guess why I've always been put off, which is why this is particularly interesting that I was I read this book so ridiculously quickly. And uh and that was and still is the most It's a very very good book and I would recommend it to anyone but when opportunity or when the right uh, situation and the right thing like a book or a video come together and the book is exactly what the situation i.e. the person needs or the video or the person is exactly what the, the other person or the situation needs and they come together. It's the most beautiful, beautiful harmony because mm. for, a, for a million other people, that book is just a very good book. Yeah. But for me, that book changed my life forever. And it met you
0: at the perfect point. Exactly. That book could have been given to you a year before and you could have read yes. it and it could have done nothing yeah. and it wouldn't have been there at that moment. Exactly. That's and, uh, unreal because that's what people would call fate. Yeah. And to take away oh, like the... Yeah, I mean, to like take away the abstract airy fairy side of like you know the disney stories that was a moment of fate
1: yeah yeah without
0: a doubt because you were at the perfect point like in your path and then you were met with the catalyst that you needed to yeah. kind of like
1: project forward to springboard forward yeah it was an uh, incredible incredible book and that so, I... yeah but yes yeah, so i read it and it was great and uh you know the most unbelievable thing is that it 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 was just a key. It was basically a key for doors that I I'd, I'd actually not seen. And
0: uh you what, know what what were these type of messages that you were taking from it that kind of resonated with you
1: as the key. Just that life could be about love. Mm. Life could be about love. I genuinely hadn't considered like one of the one of the one of the things that at the time blew my mind was if you would never want the last thing you say to someone you love to be that you hate them or that you're annoyed with them or anything because you never it's basically the message basically was like you never know when you're gonna die and lots of people would see that as being quite morbid and depressing but actually it's the most invigorating and beautiful thing you can imagine because. For about two months, every day I woke up and said to myself, this could be my last day. And I was, I was basically high from that book for months on end. Flaming. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I read the whole series of books. Is like four books. Yeah. yeah um, I haven't read the other ones, like The Fifth Agreement. Yeah. The Master of Love, uh, The Voice of Knowledge, and The Fifth Agreement. Mm. Um, and they are all phenomenal really phenomenal um, and I would highly recommend it to anyone um, so this book was yeah. a turning point for you yeah uh, you know like another thing is like he used a metaphor of like the angel of death you know that he said the angel of death owns you and all your family and all your possessions you don't own a single thing because in a moment the angel of death can take all those things away from you yeah you know you think
0: do you, you not see that terrifying is um, that not like? Because, I mean, I hear that and I think, like, well, bloody hell, I'm a bit bit worried now because anything can go at any moment. But then in the same breath, I think, well, it, it also gives me a completely new appreciation for everything I have because I'm telling my family I love them like it's the last time, and I'm hugging my friends like it's the last time. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going with that thought in mind, but you, you have an enhanced and heightened level of appreciation
1: yeah I like again I think for a lot of people that is a scary thought but again it just met me at the perfect moment where I was like I would wake up and look around me in my bedroom and I was like none of this is mine Hmm. you know I walk down the street genuinely like the only reason why this isn't heaven to so many people is because they say it's not whereas if you just say it is and you realise that just to be breathing is is something that is heavenly, then this is heaven. And you yeah. can make it hell, or you can make it heaven. Yeah. So th- this
0: was, like we are saying, this was the turning point for you. So yeah. was it then, how was the progress, after after reading this book, how um, was the progress to, like, a more positive outlook?
1: So the book is actually based on, uh, like, Toltec spirituality, which is a, which is a a tradition in Mexico, a spiritual tradition. And, but I didn't, I didn't go down a sort of spiritual route at that point. Um, I went more down like self-help, so I wanted to understand the mind and, and all those things. And I wanted to understand... Uh, how the mind works and how to deal with things like jealousy and anxiety Because at that point I'd recognized that it was anxiety and it was jealousy and it was anger and it was All those things that were affecting me most So that's what I did. I was just uh, started learning about the mind and you know very sort of surface level um, I Guess also in that time I was beginning to get very interested in meditation but again more on the surface level like because it relaxes you because yeah. it makes you calm and you see someone who's been meditating for 40 years and they look, their eyes are like rolling back they, know, well, and... yeah they're
0: probably stoned as well but... <laughs> you know <laughs> what, and type, of like, medita- oh, what type of meditation
1: were you doing um at first it was all like guided and stuff and then like with youtube
0: videos and yeah stuff like that you have a voice
1: and then i started just listening to music and then eventually it was just nothing just quiet but then i'd have sort of you know, I read, like, books about how to meditate and stuff like that.
0: Did they help you, those books?
1: Yeah, some of them did. Some of them definitely didn't. Some of them became very frustrating. This is, this is really the... All that stuff I've just said is, like, it's all right, but, like, everyone suffers. You know, everyone has a story to say about suffering. Yeah. But, like, I feel like the next part of of where my mindset changed is where it gets a bit more interesting because, you know, up until then it was just like, Oh, like I had a bit of anxiety and uh, then I did some, try to figure it out and stuff like that. (laughs) It's not, I'm not an interesting guy. (laughs) Um, I should be interesting because it should be unusual for someone to suffer like that. But But it's not, it's not. It's not. Um, It's accepted now as well. (laughs) I mean, <laughs> yeah. we're, more, we're more open about it now, which I think is great. And I, yeah, yeah, like, that's sure, the whole reason 100%. why I, why I want
0: to make this podcast is is to like help people be open about like their, about their suffering. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's so great. Mm. So so you're important. Saying, mm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a special. I'm very average, and still am, still am. Uh, and anyway, so I was kind of into meditation, and I would sort of sit there with my eyes closed and be like. Okay, concentrate on your breathing, breathe in, breathe out. And then, like, after 15 minutes, like, be more frustrated than when I sat down. <laughs> and I think that's the case of, like, so many people. Mm. Um, so were you looking for, like,
0: for religion at this point? Were you looking for God, or what was I, it you were searching I, for?
1: When I first got into wanting to know about Judaism, it was from a, like, very intellectual point of view. Like, I just wanted to understand the religion more. Yeah. but Because the, you're Jewish yeah but it's because i was jewish because it's like the culture i came from you know there's only there's only so many times you can be told that because you're jewish you should be doing this this is something that is like meant for you given to you by god yeah before you start to think well i'm not doing that so am i maybe being judged by god mm. and up until that point i've didn't really believe in God, but hadn't thought about it enough to make a decision about it. Didn't really care. Yeah. Um, and I just started thinking about it more. And, you know, I spent probably about a year, went to Israel for a bit, spent like a week in Yeshiva and sort of loved it, but also sort of didn't. It's a Jewish institution for learning. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. Loads of people maybe weren't there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I sort of at that 'cause at that point I was also interested in yoga, but not like the stretches, but actually like the yogic spiritual tradition, Buddhism, uh Taoism, all religions really. I was yeah. just interested in spirituality. You're a cliche hippie. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh and although the, the the really interesting thing actually is things in all of those religions and practices and traditions resonated with me. But for some, well, not for some reason, because of the way sort of, uh, organized religion is organized. They make you feel like the religion that you were born into is definitely the one that you should be doing. And all the things within it are what you should be doing. And so I would go to learn, you know, uh, Torah, I would go to learn about Jewish stuff and actually in my mind get rid of the things that I didn't necessarily agree with and put them to the back of my mind as if they're not important. Yeah. And actively search for things I like. So anytime I heard something about meditation, or anytime I heard something about going beyond uh, how you conceptually understand God, I'd be like, Oh, Judaism's so cool. Yeah. And any time I'd hear something that I didn't agree with, for example, quite a few things about, you know, homosexuality. and
0: Who you can and can't date.
1: Yeah, and all the controversial things in in Western religion. And um, Mm. by the way, I have no problem with any religion at its core. But, you know, I I can and will pick apart all religions, including the ones that I did feel that that I resonate with more. And I think uh, it was just one day at work. I, w- I worked in retail so often if there was no customers, I would just watch videos and stuff.
0: Yeah, you and loved being remember, man, video. you were going through such a YouTube phase. Yeah. But it wasn't like YouTubers who live in the Sidemen Tower. It was like... No, <laughs> it was very different. It was, it was like, like transcendental meditation. Yeah, spiritual wormholes. wormholes.
1: <laughs> spiritual wormholes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember someone told me to watch Zeitgeist. Yeah, it's and I, a
0: great, it's a great film.
1: I, I watched it, and uh, that triggered my that triggered my curiosity because I was because they said probably I think it was just one thing, one or two things about the story of Moses and the story of Noah. And so I started doing more and more research uh, until I eventually came to this point where i said to myself if i had a question for anything else and i had this amount of evidence to go against it then i definitely wouldn't still being try i would definitely wouldn't still try and prove against it you know like if i had this amount of overwhelming evidence for something else anything else apart from this that I've been told is true from since I was born, well, I would just say, okay, well, I've got evidence to prove against it. And in that moment, again, this isn't because of the religions, it's because of how I was approaching it. But in that moment... I did put that on silence, I did. Sweet, mate. In that moment. (laughs) Uh, in, In that moment... I just felt this the most nothing like it the most unbelievable weight lift off my shoulders and I was like oh my goodness now I can like look more into yoga without feeling like God is going to punish me in my yeah. afterlife
0: ah uh, yes yeah, so you started to like have your own your own definition of God essentially where yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. They're, totally they're needed,
1: thought derived there needed be no definition exactly because there is none <laughs> yeah um, and uh, yeah, so that was an incredible moment. And uh, I was like, I can actually do what I want. And I could before as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, but you, it's almost like, I feel like you needed, and I experienced this well, as well, like you needed this push from where you had like this rampant with anxiety to a place where like you were searching to get rid of it, which like pushed you into. Spirit, spirituality slash religion, yeah. which then kind of you're like then cocooned in all this all this wisdom from so many different places. Then none of it. Like, yeah, but you're you're breaking out, and then you become the butterfly.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Mm. But do you feel like do you feel like that's that's why you throughout your life have always looked to religion as a, almost like an escape. It's interesting because
0: religion for me initially started to started to answer questions that I had mm. and questions that I realised I didn't have because I was always interested in like oh where do we go after we die and what are these like desires that I have and where do they come from and why do I act this way and why do things happen to me all these questions that I had and immediately I started to get answers. But the answers that I, that I was getting was obviously just from one source. Yeah. And I really latched onto that source. Um, and I like, took it all encompassing. Because, and I, I will stand by this now, S- the, the m- like male role models that I look up to are all religious Jews. Mm. Religious observant Jews. And those are the male role models that I look up to. And I didn't grow up with a male role model And I had to attach that as well. So I had like a proper emotional connection to just practicing Judaism. And the moment I started to form myself
1: as my own person and realized that I didn't have to, I could, I could make myself my own
0: role model essentially. And and I couldn't, I couldn't become my own person by following something that wasn't me. And so I'm like, I you know I spent a good couple of years as as observant as I wanted to be, but I would started to break away from that when I realised that I I was still one step away from being like as true to myself as possible. And the moment I did break away from it, and it felt like a breakaway. Like we we were discussing before, like it was when I was sitting on I was on the fence for about a year as to whether I wanted to practice a religion or not and i had to make a decision that i i'm not going to make a decision like i said i my decision was to not make a decision then and and then all of a sudden after like 9 months of battling internally and it was horrible this was just last year as well all of a sudden when i decided to like not make a decision things just came clear to me because i acted on a positive impulse i acted on a positive impulse and when I woke up, instead of being told that I'm to say I'm grateful for waking up, you were. I was grateful for waking up.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's such an incredible thing.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I didn't need it. And I remember walking down the beach in Tel Aviv and the coast of Israel, walking down the beach just before I left uh, learning in Israel, just before I left Yeshiva. I remember walking down that beach. I took off my kippah, so my skull cap. I took off my Jewish garments that I was wearing as well. And I said, right, I'm going to walk down this promenade and encompass what it means to wear those garments without wearing them. Oh, yeah. So, for example, a sit-sit, which is the the strings that you wear. So it's got strings on the four corners of your T-shirt. That's supposed to help you understand that there is an almighty kind of like power watching over you at all times, just to ensure that you're like, to remind you that you're fulfilling the right, doing the right things. And so... I wanted to have that feeling without feeling the pressure that I was doing the wrong things, but at the same time be able to encompass my own definition of right mm. and just walk along that promenade knowing that I was I was being contri- completely true to myself. I didn't need any physical objects to do it, and I could just, like, have that feeling internally. But yeah. it also meant that I could eat whatever food I wanted to as well. Like, it came with a lot of benefits. And and I right now I feel like I walk... I don't in my head like the definition of god is very abstract because I don't see it as a all powerful being I see it as the existence that we exist through so the only like metaphor to describe it as is like you have a movie screen and the screen itself is quote unquote god and then everything being shown on that screen is like what exists through the screen yeah and that's what we do and that's what this entire world is so I don't see it as a God that I have to like pray to or anything like that. But I feel like you can be on the same wavelength as it. But it also alleviates the pressure of trying to be someone who you're not. All of a sudden, I can I can just be me and that's okay. And that, for me, was the greatest liberation of all time, knowing mm-hmm. that I'm okay who I am now. I'm, o- I'm okay with how I dress now and speaking to who I want to, speaking how I want to. And, and I'm okay
1: doing that, and that, that yeah. was a
0: huge, hugely liberating moment. It's freedom. For yeah, it, it's a great freedom. So, you obviously, like you were saying before, you kind of delved into these religious and spiritual roots, but then mm. came out the other side of it a completely new person.
1: Yeah, and but still interested in, in spirituality, but just at that time, I was very against. Western spirituality, because I thought it was just dogmatic. So what what was your... Oh, fine. So what was your definition then of spirituality? I didn't have one at the time. Because when I left... When I left... You know, it was only probably about ten months or a year that I was involved in Jewish thought, schools of thought. But it did shape the way I viewed it. And so when I... made the decision that I didn't want to be involved with this anymore... Or at least wanted to take a break. I wanted to distance myself from it. I just didn't have definitions of anything. Everything was possible. Everything was open. And I read a another book called, uh, which probably more people will know, called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle. And that was the most frustrating book I've ever read. It is a frustrating it book to read. It is. I, I hear that. so much. <laughs> But, it pissed me off because I was reading it, and he was like, come into now, take a breath, realise that you're only in now, and you will find peace. Things like that. And so I'd be walking down the street, take a big, <sighs> deep breath in. Deep blocked nose breath in (laughs) look around me realize something now and i'd say that classic mantra like there's no other time but now and be like all right why aren't you peaceful now why like why why aren't you peaceful now you've done everything he's told you to do and you're not peaceful um and then you get frustrated and then you get frustrated that you're feeling frustrated and not peaceful then you get frustrated that you're feeling frustrated that you're feeling frustrated and it's just another cycle to get trapped in mm. but the one thing that stuck and i would heard the word before but never really considered what it meant or anything like that it was just something that you know happened to some people it was the word enlightenment and I knew that it was just this, uh, well, I thought it was this state, you know, quote unquote state that, you know, is reserved for sort of like Buddhist monks and yogis. Yeah, like you reach the stage of Nirvana. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And only 13 people in the whole of Buddhism have ever reached Nirvana or some bullshit. Siddhartha
0: was like, he sat underneath a tree, didn't he? Yeah,
1: like no one had ever seen that state before before, um, uh, the Buddha. Your tea's going to be freezing now. It's going to be gross. Oh, no, it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, and But, yeah, so the first time I really considered what it was was from that book, because Eckhart Tolle spoke so much about enlightenment. And I started looking into it and found the, again, like, so many contradictions, but a technique called the the direct path or... Uh, or the who am I technique which was made uh, famous in the 50s by um, Ramana Maharshi Mm. and nothing interested me in spirituality more than that because it promised this world that once you've achieved enlightenment there's no suffering and there's only peace. But there's no fear of But what do and they, mean? No what do they mean by
0: enlightenment? Because that, like, again, in the same way that, like... When we talk about fate, enlightenment sounds so unachievable and abstract and airy-fairy. And it just doesn't mean yeah. anything.
1: It's just a word. So, I didn't know what enlightenment meant. All I knew is what the people that were seemingly enlightened... What they said about it, which is that it's the end of suffering and... Uh, you don't fear death anymore because you realise there's no such thing as death and all these seemingly totally bullshit concepts that you hear and so you know I wanted to find out what enlightenment was and you know I've got a lot of things like it's the end of suffering or but I think the important part was sort of watching spiritual teachers that would say well it's the end of you it's the destruction of you or it's seeing through the concept of what you believe yourself to be it's asking the most fundamental question what who or what am i truly because like for our whole life We think we know what we are. We're a body, we're a mind, we're emotions, we're past experiences, and that all comes together to form me, Mm. or this me character. And that's never questioned. That's like probably one of the only things that is seen as being, for some reason, absolute truth. That you are you, and no one else is you. And you are very unique, and, you know, that's it. You know, you're yeah. a body and a mind, basically. Body, mind experiences. And, yeah. it, and that's you. Everything you and are. Everything is else is outside of yeah, you.
0: What you've been through. And... So this connection, like, with yourself and understanding who you are is completely... It's a complete paradox to, like, what you're experiencing at, like, the start of your relationship when you had all these jealous emotions. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're pointing your feelings, you're pointing them like outwards at other people and everywhere aside from aiming it inside of you. So how did that help you? Then all of a sudden you're able to look at yourself and question yourself and be aware of yourself. How did that help you battle your anxiety that you were experiencing beforehand? Well, because obviously those emotions didn't just go away. Anxiety doesn't, doesn't just disappear, does it? So,
1: I guess it's like It was the idea that I might be able to achieve enlightenment which is by the way just in, in hindsight is a ridiculous thing to say. But that at the time I thought I could achieve enlightenment, I could gain it and that would be the end of my anxiety. The anxiety and jealousy and all these things I would have, they would go away once I'm enlightened it's yeah. almost like uh you know once i've uh dreamlike state once i've finished university or something you know it's, it's the same it's exactly the same process as as everything else that i'd ever done and what so many other people ever do it's like well once this happens then it will be okay and yeah. it's like enlightenment seemingly is this thing that happens uh, uh that tells you that it is genuinely end of suffering it's not just that you won't suffer from this particular thing but it's the end of all suffering because the thing that is suffering disappears mm. and so you know you start bypassing your suffering you start saying well you know because I'm because I'm uh, you know going for enlightenment Anxiety is not a part of the sort of person who becomes enlightened. Yeah. And so like, then you just like, if, get rid of it. You know? well, it's oh, like anxiety, a very stoic like, approach, isn't it? Because you're like
0: rejecting, actively rejecting these emotions. Yeah. Is, is that, that
1: healthy? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. And, uh, but it's interesting because as soon as the seed, as soon as the seed of of uh i don't want to call it enlightenment anymore because i actually hate that word as, as soon as the seed of, of awareness is that- awareness beauty yeah. I, I i don't know as soon as that seed is laid anyway as soon as it's sown that there might be a way to live which destroys your fundamental belief about yourself if it's actually sown in your mind because lots of people will like the idea conceptually but once they get to a certain point they realize it's so ridiculously difficult to actually untangle your the concept of what you are that they give up on it but when the seed is sown in the right mind and the right time and the conditions are perfect for that seed to be sown. There's no going back. You you yeah. can't you can't just give up on it because everything in your experience wants you to find out what you are. Mm. So ha- and then this
0: connecting with your feelings of anxiety, so anxiety would start to come back up.
1: And, and yeah, so that's it. So you actually start to get more anxious now and more frustrated now. Because now there's this feeling that, well, I shouldn't be feeling like this. Yeah. You know, there's, it's like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this because I'm a spiritual person. Yeah. And in that, you actually enforce your sense of self. The very thing you're trying to see through, mm. the very thing you're trying to actually get rid of, you enforce by saying i'm a spiritual person so i can't feel this particular emotion it's it's hilarious
0: i always remember my mentor would always say to me like you can't the moment you label yourselves you are the moment you label who you are you are then limited within the the definition of that label so all the key is obviously to not label yourself at all but then you've labeled yourself a spiritual person yeah so frustration kicks in when you start feeling anxious because Hey, man, I'm
1: super spiritual with these feelings of anxiety. Like, they're not me, bro. (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly that. Like, you know, uh, I told uh, told someone the other day, or actually it wasn't the other day, it was a couple of months ago now, that there was a time where I didn't even want to play sports because, you know, those sorts of spiritual teachers didn't look like they were... (laughs) energized enough to do something Mate, like have you so seen Sad Guru you
0: know Sad Guru yeah. from India have you seen him on Instagram I was sending, uh, uh, sending one yeah, of the boys yeah. like videos of him uh, he's like throwing frisbees and playing football and shit like that and he's, yeah like, he's one got of a the,
1: motorbike I think
0: he's awesome he's like one of the most incredible spiritual gurus that I've come across and <laughs> yeah he's a cool guy I, I listen to a lot of what he says and he's like he's playing sports it's all, it's yeah, all oh, right 100%, him.
1: <laughs> 100%. yeah And uh, so you obviously had
0: to get to a place where these feelings and emotions that were coming on, you then begin to accept them as opposed to reject them.
1: Well, I think for me, from where I am now, I can safely say that the, the point in which you see through yourself, you actually have that moment. It's not necessarily the end of pain, but it is, in some way, the end of suffering. Because your attachment to the suffering slowly over time withers away. So you suffer and you feel the emotional pain and turmoil in moments, but it comes and goes just like when you notice the clouds coming over the sun you see the sun goes in and the clouds pass away and the sun comes back out. And there's no judgment about that. Mm. Just like when you feel suffering and when you feel pain, there's, it's just that now there's no more judgment about that. You feel it still, but there's less and less and less thought about it. So there's just happening. Yeah. But I mean,
0: well, that's why very basic stoicism (laughs) didn't do anything for me. Because I can't reject emotions, I have to feel no one can. It. I, I yeah, I can't and i and i I imagine stoicism is much deeper than just rejecting emotions. I'm sure that's not what it actually is, but <laughs> yeah, from, sure. my, from my like very basic understanding of it that's what it was presented to me as, and I can't reject emotions because I feel like I have to experience them to move on to the upgraded version of me you wouldn't feel
1: them that yeah every emotion you feel is. Just by, the def- just by the fact that you're feeling it is a human one and therefore, why wouldn't you feel it? You know, I said to someone the other day, life is not about happiness, happiness is shit, happiness is boring, it's nothing to do with happiness, it's not about how happy you can be, it's about how deep you can get, it's about depth. It should be about... Everything should be about depth. How deeply are you sad? How deeply are you joyful? How Mm. deeply are you peaceful? How deeply are you angry?
0: Yeah.
1: That's... That is what life should be about, depth, not happiness. Happiness is so meagre. Yeah. You know? And... But I do want to... I do want to, like, sort of give this more shape because... Because I basically when I when I gave, sort of gave up on Judaism I was getting more and more interested in uh, yogic traditions and then sort of realised that it wasn't necessarily what I wanted or didn't resonate with me and then uh, one of the most phenomenal men that I know uh, who is very interested in Buddhism I was having a conversation with him, and he's just such a role model to me, because the way he goes about his life is unbelievably beautiful, and I saw him and saw that he was interested in Buddhism, and I thought, well, someone that acts in such a beautiful way must know things about life that I want to know and I think that's they're the moments you remember not videos of people talking about you know their experience but just watching the way someone acts Mm. and seeing beauty in that and then wanting to follow that and so I became interested in Buddhism and started looking into that and I bought a book called um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yeah, and I read the whole thing, and that, so to speak, popped my spiritual cherry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was <a> great message. <laughs> and um, and yeah, because that, for the first time, even though I'd read books about meditation actually explained what proper meditation was, which is not meditation at all. You know, he made, in the book, it was made clear, the book's by a a Shin, I'm going to pronounce this awfully, a Shinriyo shinriyo? Suzuki. Shinriyo uh, Suzuki. Yeah, he was. Suzuki, like the car. Yeah, so he died in like 1975 or something. Yeah. But he was one of the very first Buddhist teachers in America. Hmm. And uh, the book basically just made clear to me that meditation is not a part of the day that is different to the rest of the day. When you sit down to meditate, you're just sitting. You're not in a special state. And when you're
0: walking as well.
1: You're just walking. But
0: that, that... See, that... Like, I've dabbled with meditation before, like, in a very basic way, but... That's the level of meditation I've never been able to get to. We could, and and I, I have a friend who says exactly the same thing who I met in Jerusalem, and he, he'd he say to me how he could just kind of walk down the street and he'd be meditating. But in in the average mind's... In the average person's head, you're thinking, all right, so in order to meditate, I've got to sit there with my legs crossed and my palms facing upwards and like my index finger touching my yeah. thumb whilst trying to clear everything from my mind
1: yeah and yeah exactly and th- and that's not it and and you know people say like even even that like you know he can walk down the street and he'll be meditating well even that is not true because you can't not that that's that's the fundamental realization that everyone will have that goes along this pathless path yeah is you're never not meditating. You're never not totally at one. And you're you're never not enlightened. There is no enlightenment. Yes, so this, like, enlightenment that you thought that there was. Exactly. It's just, I think one of the things that, that blew my mind in this book, he said, there's no enlightenment because every second is it. And everything is it. Yeah. And when you do zazen, which is the which is the uh, word for sitting in uh, in Zen traditions, you're just sitting. You know, you're not thinking. It, any thought can come. the The problem is, people sit down to meditate, and they think meditation is having a clear mind. But that just puts pressure on having a clear mind, which actually creates more fog. And so actually, when you sit, as long as you're sitting, you've done it. You're there. You've yeah. completed the mission. As long as you're sitting, any thought can and come. stopping. Yeah, any thought can come, mm. but you've completed the mission. And, you know, like to go back to what you said about this guy walking down the street and he's meditating... Well, so are you when you walk down the street.
0: And you're just allowing thoughts to pass and you're just thinking. There's you're no
1: such thing as not meditating if you're going to see it in that way as like this part of the day is meditation and this part yeah. isn't. That's the stumbling point because you think that this part of the day is different to the rest and it's not. Mm. You know? And... uh but anyway, so I read this book and uh, I started actually just sitting and just for the first time ever allowing thoughts to come without saying, well, I can't have that one, but I can have this one. I can feel this way, but I can't feel that way. Yeah, It was total non-judgment about what was happening.
0: It's and- so incredible when you, again, when you look at like the dichotomy of who you are now with who you were back when all these thoughts were coming and they were flooding your mind and flooding you. Yeah. And it was like, you were drowning in these emotions. All of a sudden you're now swimming in them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's not, it's you know, it's not that like, I'm like, I managed to get above them, but it's that you, you, can you actually just let them encompass yeah. you because yeah. you realize that they're inherently well, and float. innately not dangerous. Yeah.
0: You float in the emotions as opposed yeah. to drowning them exactly you know that you're not fighting them and i think that's like it's a it's an incredible place to get to because all of a sudden like every these negative thoughts that come into your head are as much a part of you as the positive thoughts are and these moments of happiness that you have are just as important to you as the moments of sadness are Mm. and then you're able to like take in this this place you were at where you thought i want to kill myself i don't want to be here anymore that's just as important to like your mental makeup as the moments in which you experience most joy and love, like with your family
1: and friends. Hundred percent, they're more important. Mm. They're more important, yeah.
0: And so you're able, you're able to then get get to that place. So when you when you look at where you are now, and you look at where you were five years ago, how how does that ma- how does that make you feel? Like when you when you look in the
1: mirror, it's uh... yeah and I don't have words, I, there's no point in me trying to display or, or give over how that how that feels, it's like, it's almost like if you were to cut the grass in a garden and then go away for five years and then come back to the garden you probably wouldn't recognize it because mm. nature has changed and yeah, when you give up that wants to be anything you start to be everything yeah and then only on those times when you're just sitting down not doing much reflecting on on things you realize like how unbelievable it is to to change and at first you think that you're the one that's making all these efforts to change and you're the one making doing all these things but you realize it's just grace it's just happening and you're you're not even the observer, you are it you, yeah, you're just there, and everything's happening, and you thought that you were under this illusion before that it was you that was creating the suffering, and it was you that was stopping the suffering when really it's just one flow of things happening, just like. You know, I I love, I love this uh, sort of perspective from Taoism, which is when you feel anger, let's say, you want it to go away. Yet, you know, when you see the leaves dying on the trees because it's coming to autumn and winter and it's like, and then you're in the freezing months of winter, you don't try and think away the winter because you know that you could never think away the winter Mm. the the spring comes Mm. the summer comes and in the summer ends and it's just one flow there's not like one day where it ends it's just a flow and it's just constant it's, it's in a constant state of change why do we then think we can think away suffering why do we think that concepts will make suffering go away will make emotions go away they too are just one constantly evolving constantly changing flow and that's it and so all we really need to do is sit back and rather than always trying to fight against things if you feel angry be angry that's the most spiritual thing in the universe when you're angry you're yeah. angry when you're sad you're sad when you want to go on a walk you walk <laughs> nothing more spiritual than that
0: mate that it that that's just so incredible to listen to man and that's like i said I'm so grateful that you've come on this podcast to talk about your journey because like, I, like we said at the beginning, like I've known you for so many years, but this you that I like have had honestly the honour of like talking to for so many hours yeah. over like the last few years and like hopefully we'll have hours more conversations in the future, I'm sure we will. It's just an absolute pleasure because I just come out of it feeling so much more full because it it helps like, validate the simple truth which is that you can just be who you are your emotions can come to you as they will and that's okay yeah and you have to be okay with just being okay because not every day like you said before happiness is bullshit not every day you're going to feel happy so how 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 the hell can we like want to be gearing towards a life of happiness and a pursuit of happiness? thanks to Will Smith, but how can we, like, yeah. be gearing towards this pursuit of happiness when, like, not every day we're going to feel happy. So, like, oh, yeah. what's the bloody point, man? are to
1: feel happy every day. I
0: know, like, it's great to feel happy, but a sense of peace will get you through the days in which you don't feel happy. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like, me and one of my friends were saying, like, because for men it's not, you know, if you cry, it's a bad thing. Yeah. It's so, but when you get over that stigma, mm. you actually find yourself being really happy when you're crying. <laughs> and like, so yeah. when you watch a film, it's like the best feeling when you cry. Mm. And I think that is just representative of knowing that you don't always have to be this figure of strength. Yeah. You can be everything. And you can... And another thing that's incredible is just being average. You know, like, and, and I guess that ties it all in really nicely is five years ago I wanted to be the very best at basically everything I did but especially at my career that I would chosen and now I love being the most average person you'll ever meet because I am you know I, I actually love that I love that I've I'm good at some things not great at other things I love drinking tea and eating food and I love forcing
0: whiskey down your throat
1: yeah (laughs) even when you're driving like like, like, you know like just drinking whiskey and thinking like the first sip's nice but the rest is pretty horrible
0: yeah we pretend
1: to like it anyway (laughs) (laughs) but yeah being average yeah you know I think that's I think it's a great perfect yeah
0: it's a great moral man and look thank you again for coming on bro
1: It was a genuine pleasure. You're a bloody legend, mate.